My wife and I, we have, and our kids, we've lived in Memphis for about a year and a half, and absolutely love living here, love Fisherville, love this church, but there's one place that we miss so much, and that is a place called Disney World. All right, we came from Orlando, and everybody assumes that since you live in the Orlando area, you must go to Disney World all the time, and then I remind people, um, I work in a church, and uh can't afford to go to Disney World all the time, but there was this moment when Micah was just a little bit younger that Meredith and I had the idea of, we need to take him to Disney World. He loves Mickey Mouse. He wears Mickey Mouse pajamas. We try our very best to make him Mickey Mouse pancakes. He talks about Mickey Mouse. He loves Mickey Mouse. So we need to take him to see the mouse. So we're excited. We're driving in our vehicle, looking at him through the rearview mirror and just looking at his face. He has no clue what's about to happen. Now, parents know this, that sometimes we have higher expectations for an experience um, than our kids do. So we wait in this forever long line to actually see Mickey Mouse. And Micah's impatiently standing next to us and we are eagerly anticipating his reaction to Mickey Mouse. We come around the corner to get this picture that cost an arm and a leg with the mouse, and Micah does not smile, he screams. And it is the highest pitched scream that I still have heard to this day, and he grabs my leg, and I said, let's go see Mickey, and he looks up at me and says, he's huge. I said, Micah, we're going to make it. We got a picture. The picture is not worth showing because Micah's not even looking at the, at the camera at that time. But there's just this moment for this child that the idea of Mickey on a TV screen or the idea of Mickey on some pajamas was completely different than what he expected when he encountered what we would call the real Mickey. And in Isaiah chapter number 6 we see that Isaiah truly encounters the Lord. John would tell us this, that he encountered Jesus. And I would say this, for, for many of us, we maybe just maybe have this perception of God that is very one-dimensional. We have a perception of God that is, is rather, I would say, mild. And there truly is a God who reveals him th Himself through Scripture that is much larger and much bigger than we could ever dare to imagine. And when you and I come in relationship with this God, real simply, it changes everything. Last week we heard a great message on discipleship. Today we're going to hear a message on evangelism. And I just want to make a couple of statements as we begin that the prerequisite for discipleship is evangelism. If there is no evangelism, then who are we to disciple? But also, I want you to realize this, that the byproduct of discipleship is evangelism. I see it like a sandwich. If discipleship is the meat, then evangelism is the bread. So in our efforts to serve the Lord, which is to carry His name into the world, which is to proclaim His name and His gospel, that's evangelism. After evangelism comes discipleship, where we're training and leading people to become more and more like Christ. I'll never forget 
a teenager several years ago, I asked him this question, what is discipleship? What is discipleship? And he says, it's when the disciples get in the ship with Jesus. And the more I thought about it, the more I saw a lot of truth in that. That whenever you think of discipleship, it's, it's when you and I are, we are coming alongside Jesus, learning his ways, learning his principles, learning his truth. But discipleship should always lead us to evangelism. It should always lead us to sharing our faith and sharing the gospel. Now, why does evangelism matter? Because it does. First, I would say this. God is an evangelistic God. He is a sending God. He gave His very best to us, which is Jesus. And if that is on the heart of God, it should be on the heart of God's people. Evangelism. Each and every one of us sharing the truth, sharing the message of the gospel. I want you to just gain some perspective for a moment. Matthew 28, verse 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is a, a people group perspective. There are 17,020 different people groups. 7,066, this is all based on 2019 research. 7,066 are unreached people groups. That's 41.5%. The population, let this just sink in for a moment. The population of unreached groups is 3 billion. That there are truly, right here, right now, as you hear my voice, there are people who have never heard of Jesus Christ. From an individual perspective, Mark 16, verse 15 says this, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. In the world, we could say this, that there are 10% who are Christ followers or 22%, which are nominal Christians. I wish we had time to get into that. 39% they've heard but have not responded. And 29% virtually have no exposure. So there are people, as we are privileged, even right now, to be in God's house to hear God's word. There are people who have never heard. There are people who have no access to the gospel there are people who have no idea of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. So in Isaiah chapter 6, what I want you to see uh, real plainly, let me make a side note real quick. Isaiah 53 is a passage that a preacher preached and I was saved. Isaiah chapter 6 is a passage that a preacher preached and I was called to ministry. It's unbelievable just to have the privilege to even share this text. But what we're going to see in Isaiah chapter 6 is we must first and foremost be overwhelmed by the majesty of God. We must be cleansed by the mercy of God. And we must surrender ourselves to the mission of God. Look at verse number 1. It says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations 
of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And this is what Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. If you want to know what my prayer is for today, it's this right here. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And just our focus verse, it says this, And I heard the voice of of the Lord saying to me, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And listen to this. And he said, go. He said, go. The president of our Southern Baptist Convention, J.D. Greer, wrote an incredible book. It's called Gaining by Losing. Um, If you're a reader, I'd encourage you to read that. But he makes a statement that ultimately has just struck me to the core of my being where he says the the success of our churches is not our seating capacity, it's our sending capacity. That the measure of success for a church is not how many people are showing up, but it's how many people are, are being sent out. And just to clarify, this is not just being sent to the nations, which is what we need. And I pray to God that there are people in this room that would say, here am I, send me. But it's not just the nations, but it's our neighbors. It's the people that don't have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that we are moved and compelled by Christ to share that good news with them. So the first point I want you to see this morning, I would say this is a very simple message. It absolutely terrifies me. I'll just be honest with you. My first thought was, dear Lord, why don't we just stand up here, read this passage and tell everybody to go sit in a quiet place by themselves. Just read these verses, just allow them to sit by themselves, allow them to hear you speak to them, and they respond with what to what they've heard, what they've seen, what they've read. But I know my assignment right here and right now is to try my very best to walk us through this passage, and I would just say this, that my best attempt has still fallen short. It's absolutely unbelievable what this passage of Scripture Says, But the first point this morning, it says this. We must be overwhelmed by the majesty of God. We must be overwhelmed by the majesty of God. Everything had shifted in the nation of Israel. Everything had shifted. They were prospering under the leadership of King Uzziah. King Uzziah was, um, a, after his father had died, he was 16 years old when he took residence on the throne as a king. I mean, just imagine that. We get nervous handing a 16-year-old car keys. And this 16-year-old boy was given the privilege and honor of leading a nation as a king. But the scripture reminds us in 2 Chronicles 26 that as long as Uzziah sought the Lord, he would prosper. And I want you to know something real clear this morning. Maybe this will be an encouragement to you that God's still making that promise today. That if we'll seek Him, we will find Him. 
that if we, will, if we will devote ourselves by faith, throwing ourselves upon Him, He promises that He will in fact prosper you. And this is not, I'm not talking from a materialistic standpoint. It's not saying you surrender your life to Jesus, it's, it's going to be the blingdom and not the kingdom, alright? There's my youth pastor terminology. No, like He promise you, is you, promises you this, that if you come into alignment and agreement with Him, that He will in fact bless you. And He made that promise to King Uzziah. King Uzziah was a brilliant leader. He was a brilliant leader. He, w- he was creating weapons for warfare that were absolutely unheard of. He would create um, aqueducts for hydration and economic purposes. He, he led this nation to prosper for 52 years. But what happened to King Uzziah? What happened to him? It says that he died, but how, how did this transpire? This is what happened. He entered the temple to offer incense, which was a role and a responsibility set aside for a priest, not a king. And just a side note real quick, it does not matter how high up you get in God's economy, you're always under His authority. Always. So Uzziah goes where he should not have gone. He does what he should not have done. And these men of valor, Azariah, and these 80 men of valor come up to him and they call him on the carpet and they say, look, you should not have done that. And instead of repentance and remorse, Uzziah gets angry and upset. And what the Lord does to Isaiah is he, and I know this is graphic, but he strikes him with leprosy in his face and he dies in isolation. So you have this king that was respected. You have this king that brought about so much positive change in in the nation, and then in a moment of vulnerability, in a moment of pride, he does something that he shouldn't have done, and he's remembered for that. So it's in this moment, I mean, the news is spreading from house to house, the news is spreading from town to town, that the king is dead. This guy who ruled and reigned for 52 years is no longer on his throne. You just imagine the surge of grief that just struck the nation. People, they respected him. They admired him, and he's no longer there. They were really at the brink of a nervous breakdown. I don't have time to get into all this, but the Assyrians are coming closer. There's so much that is taking place where people are absolutely panicking, and it's chaotic. But it's in this space and in this place that Isaiah sees the Lord. And I'll say this as a side note too, that tribulation is always, most often, the greatest pathway for revelation. It's usually in the moments of hurt and heartache that we hear God. That we, that we hear His voice clearly. And Isaiah encounters the Lord. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, I imagine that Isaiah was going to the temple maybe for consolation. I mean, his heart is, is broken. This leader that he has respected is, is dead. There is so much turmoil taking place politically, and it's just hostile in the nation. I can imagine he's going there for consolation, but the Lord diverts his gaze and his attention not to an empty throne, but to a throne that is occupied. A throne that is forever occupied. 
And on that throne sits the Lord. And on that throne is is a true and better king. Isaiah sees the Lord and he lives. He lives. Should have have died in that moment, but, but he lives. And what we see is that he's overwhelmed by the majesty of God. Verse number two says this. Above him stood the seraphim, these burning ones. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now this description that we see here in verse 1-3 through is, is beyond the human experience. This description is, is so far, like for me to even try my very best to communicate this, I'm still falling short, but what we get a glimpse of is into the windows of heaven. What is taking place in heaven? What are these seraphim, these burning ones doing? Their, their faces are veiled, their feet are veiled, and they're crying, holy, holy, holy. One, this is what they're doing. They're praising God. Do you get that? When you go to sleep tonight, he's praised. When you wake up in the morning, he's praised. A thousand years from now, he's still praised. 10,000 years from now, he's still being praised by these seraphim. Now, here's the interesting thing about a seraphim is they are not redeemed. These are, these are people, these are individuals, these, these burning ones that have no concept of what it's like to go from lost to found. They don't know what it's like to be redeemed, to be saved. They don't know. But the only thing that they bring before the Lord is constant praise, constant adoration. Why is that? It's because He's holy. It's because He's holy. And what does holiness mean? It means that He's separate. It means that He's in a division all by Himself. It means that He's different and He's comparless. This repetition of holy, holy, holy. It's not that you're very, very, very holy. This, this terminology, the repetition, is just reminding us of the intensity of His holiness. It's as if like in a, in a book that you would read, it, it's like it would, instead of mentioning it three times, it's just bold and italicized and underscored. Just don't lose this thought. He is holy. He's separate. He's in a division all by Himself. What God is doing in this moment is He is taking Isaiah's eyes off of a mortal king, a defiled king, a dead king, a king whose rule and reign ended, and he is diverting it to a king that, listen, he's ruled and reigned forever. He's not defiled. He can't be impeached even if you wanted him to. Like he's forever on his throne. And and God, the Lord, is showing Isaiah this vision which is going to become the vehicle for his ministry which is going to become the thrust and the reason for why Isaiah would stand and say, look, right here. Here I am. Would you send me? Verse 4 says, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Notice what he says. And I says, Woe is me. 
for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When you and I are completely overwhelmed by the majesty of God, we will begin to see just how unworthy we are and what we truly deserve. Isaiah became painfully aware of his iniquity. He became painfully aware of his inadequacy. He became painfully aware that in this moment, he should have dropped dead. After seeing the holiness, the perfection, the beauty of God. But we see in this passage that he was spared. Isaiah was spared in the presence of God. It allowed him to realize, don't miss this, he realized in that moment the senselessness of his sin. The senselessness of his sin. He didn't expect to live. And, and when he says that I'm undone, what, what it really means is Isaiah was, was coming apart at the seams. Like he was unraveling in the presence of God. Ultimately to say this, listen, he would never be the same again. He'd never be the same again. In the presence of God, hear me on this, you can't have mild reactions. You can't have mild reactions to God. If you have truly encountered the presence of the Lord, if you have truly encountered the God of the universe, it's impossible for us just to experience a slight modification. Like we are ruined in His presence. We are unraveled. We come apart at the seams in the presence of a holy God. Matthew chapter 12 speaks to this idea where Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips because it says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. So Isaiah is saying, look, my heart is unclean. My heart is, is, is broken. My heart is lost. My heart is ruined. And in this moment, what he needed is the mercy of God. He needed what Psalm 51 verse 10 would say is, create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me a clean heart, O God. So we see in this passage that Isaiah is overwhelmed by the majesty of God. For, for some application this morning, I want you to think about this. This statement. I need to see God for who He is. I need to see God for who He is. Would you agree to that? Would you agree that our churches and our world would be different if we stopped coming to Him on our terms? We got rid of this false idea about God that many of us have constructed and we allowed His Word to just be sufficient enough to reveal exactly who He is. I believe the greatest need, A.W. Tozer said this, he says the greatest need of this present moment is that we would see Jesus high and lifted up with the train of His robe filling the temple. If there's anything that's going to, the vehicle, I would say, that's going to move us to evangelism, the vehicle that's going to take us from our seat to the street, the vehicle 
is we become undone in his presence. We realize that we've been spared. We realize that this God is vast, that this God is huge. I'm here to tell you this. He never had a beginning and therefore depends on nothing for his existence. He always has been and he always will be alive. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the Supreme Court. He is the legislator. He is the chief executive. His counsel will stand and he will accomplish his purpose. He sits in the heavens and he does what he pleases. It's this God that you and I have the privilege of knowing. This God that we have the privilege of experiencing. And what we realize is we need to see him for who he is. So just real simple, real simple. If we're going to experience God for who He is, if we're going to experience the trueness of who He is, the authenticity of who He is, just real practical steps right here. We can't be strangers to Scripture. All right? We have to, we have to know God's Word. We have to be in God's Word. He's revealing Himself. There is no other revelation. If you want to know who God is, if you want to know what's on His heart, What's on his mind? It's right here. So when we talk about the presence of God, the presence of God only happens when we are in his word. Now, he reveals himself through creation, but we're going to get his rhythm. We're going to get his heartbeat when we are in his word and when his word, more importantly, is in us. So we must we're so desperate, I would say that this morning to be overwhelmed by the majesty of God. Let me see if I can slide into something to lighten it up just a tiny bit. Arnold Palmer, many of you think about uh, sweet tea and lemonade, uh, but Arnold Palmer was a golfer, and he was invited by the king of Saudi Arabia to a golf match. He just wanted to really just develop a greater relationship with this man, and invited him to play golf. So the king of Saudi Arabia and Arnold Palmer are at a golf exhibition. They're playing golf. And the king says this to Arnold Palmer, I want to give you a gift. I want to give you a gift. And Arnold Palmer is just like, man, you, you, don't, you don't need to give me anything. It has just been a privilege and an honor just to be in your presence and to enjoy this day playing golf with you. And the king insisted, Arnold, I want to give you a gift. Tell me what you want. And Arnold said, uh, man, I really just don't know. He says, tell me what you want. He says, man, I'll just, I'll just, just give me a golf club. I collect golf clubs. Okay. So Arnold Palmer goes home. Several weeks pass by and there's a knock on the door. He opens the door. A man hands us Arnold Palmer an envelope. He puts the envelope on the counter, just goes on with the rest of his day. That night, he remembers that knock at the door. He opens the envelope, and in that envelope is a message from the king of Saudi Arabia. And he has, in fact, given Arnold Palmer a golf club. But I'm not talking about a golf club. I'm talking 500 acres of golf club. I'm talking about the trees, the sand traps, absolutely everything. And it just reminds us of this right here, that in the presence of a king, he's much bigger than you thought. 
I mean, in our world today, we're impressed by people who dig swimming pools. He created the ocean. We're impressed by the fact that we put a flag on the moon. He created the moon. We're impressed by so many things, oh, our buildings and our structures that we have in our cities. He looks down on every single one of them. I'm just here to tell you this. We must be overwhelmed by this God. We must be overwhelmed by a God that is huge and He's holy and He's different and He's separate from each and every one of us. We need to see God for who He is. Secondly, Isaiah was cleansed by the mercy of God. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Now, remember that Isaiah is completely undone. Isaiah is unraveling at the seams, but God does not leave Isaiah devastated. In fact, God does for Isaiah what Isaiah cannot do for himself. I would say this, that the moment in which Isaiah experiences his personal misery, the moment that he experiences just how unworthy he is, I believe that's the moment that that seraphim was cued. That seraphim came to him with that provision. That seraphim came to him with that burning coal. That's the moment in which you and I so desperately need. Did you, do you believe this this morning? That God is actually attracted to your weakness. He's actually attracted to your brokenness. That it is the kindness of Him that leads us to a place of repentance. That Isaiah was not left de- devastated, but mercy was put in motion the moment Isaiah recognizes his, minis- his misery. This hot coal that the seraphim brought to him was taken from the altar where sacrifices were offered. This, this foresees the deliverance of, of that final sacrifice, that true and better lamb, the lamb of God, as, as John the Baptist would say, who takes away the sin of the world, the one who laid down his life so that you and I could experience life in him. See, Isaiah, of course, he heard the thunderous praise of the seraphim. He heard the foundations of the threshold shaking all around him. But you know what God heard? God heard the voice of a man named Isaiah that says, without you, I'm nothing. He heard the voice of Isaiah that says, look, I'm completely undone in your presence. I'm ruined in your presence. And if you don't take the initiative, if you don't act, I'm forever devastated. I'm forever lost. But aren't you grateful that God, in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our lostness, sent forth Jesus? He's a missionary God. He's a sending God. He gave His very best to you, and He gave His very best to me. Isaiah, in this moment, is cleansed by the mercy of God. He's cleansed by the mercy of God. He didn't deserve that. He couldn't earn that. There wasn't one thing he could do to whistle that down. That's all God's mercy. That's all God's kindness directed towards somebody who did not deserve it. Psalm 57, verse 15. If you're still with me, say amen. All right. Psalm 57, verse 15. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's what he wants from us. And it's the thing that we hide the most. We don't want to 
acknowledge our need. We don't want to lose our profile. We want to look like we have it all together, but I promise you this, God is not looking at, He's not looking for polish. He's not looking for somebody that has it all together. He's looking for somebody that says, in your presence, completely undone. In your presence, my greatest need is you. In your presence, there's nothing more that I need than Jesus. Verse 17, or verse 7 says this, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. In the Old Testament, the, the atonement was, it, it's a means of, of covering. It's the purpose of animal sacrifice was to cover the offense, was to cover the sin. But in the New Testament, the concept, the truth of atonement means to put away. Can you just believe this for a moment? That God did not just cover your sin, but He put your sin away. He took every bit of it. Your past sin, come on, this is good news. Your past sin, your present sin, and your future sin, all covered, all completely thrown to the other side of the sea by Jesus. That's what He does for each and every one of us. 1 John 1 verse 7 says this, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Psalm 103 verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Micah 7 verse 19, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. 1 John 1 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us. That's a good God. That's a God who's worthy of worship. That's a God who's worthy of praise. That's a God who completely transforms lives. And do you realize this? We have that message. We have that hope. We have that real... I'm just here to tell you, I'm a satisfied customer. Because there's, there's nobody who knows me like me. And the fact that Jesus, I can't get over the fact, I'm 16 years old, lost his last year's Easter egg, and Jesus stopped me in my tracks in Keystone Heights, Florida, changed my life. I mean, I fell down, I'm not kidding, I fell down on the pavement in a dirty, sandy tabernacle floor in Keystone Heights, Florida. There was not one person next to me that said, hey, I need you to, I need you to pray this. You know, I'm a sinner. No, I came, I'm telling you, I'm on my face saying, God, I know I'm a sinner, I just finished helping the band lead worship, playing the drums. But I'm here to tell you, I've been playing a lot of songs for you and singing a lot of songs for you, but I did not know you. I didn't have that relationship with you. Mike Grover, this pastor's preaching Isaiah 53. I'm losing my mind just by the fact that God would be the missionary God and send forth His very best for the very worst like me. ruined me, still ruins me. The fact that I'm still broken and I'm still in need of Jesus and I'm still a, a sinner, but I'm saved by His grace and He's given me what I don't deserve. I'm just here to tell you, if that doesn't light your fire, your wood is wet. And I'm not trying to be funny, but there's just something that changes us when Jesus invades our lives, forgives us of our sins, declares us. I mean, here's the moment. 
You okay if I teach for just a second? There's so much content here I don't have time to get to. But Isaiah, he experiences what we would call expiation, which is the removal of his sin. So if that sin is removed, it's, it's pick, where does the sin go? God took the sin of humanity and he placed it on Jesus. Propitiation, 1 John chapter 1. So expiation plus propitiation, listen, justification. That's a legal term, which means I'm declared righteous. There's not one thing that's right or just about me but Jesus Christ. I'm just here to tell you this. He was overwhelmed by the majesty of God and he was cleansed by the mercy of God. What we need in this present moment is to see God for who he is and for us to see ourselves for who we are. Isaiah said, woe is me, not woe is we, not woe is he, not woe is she. He said, woe is me, because if you have a personal view of the holiness of God, you must, I'm preaching this morning, I wish you heard me. If you have a personal view of the holiness of God, you will have a personal view of your sin. A personal view of your sin. And it's all personal. It's me. I'm the one who's undone. I'm the one who's ruined. I'm the one who desperately needs Jesus Christ. So you see this, that Isaiah is cleansed. I'm about to put a bow on this thing and end it. Isaiah is cleansed. And that cleansing leads to a commissioning. That cleansing moves him forward. Notice what he says in verse number 8. It says, and I heard the voice. Come on, do you hear that for a second? He saw the Lord in verse number 1. And it wasn't until he was cleansed that he hears the voice of the Lord. I, I, I love you too much not to say this. You'll never hear his voice if you're not cleansed. It's, it's the pure and the contrite heart. It's the broken heart that he's not going to despise. But for many of us, we need clarity in our lives. But more than we need clarity, we need cleansing. And when you have cleansing... When, when God just lavishes His mercy upon you, His love upon you, when you experience His cleansing, you'll hear His clarifying words of instruction. You'll hear everything that He needs to say. So it says, I heard the voice of the Lord. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then He says, here am I. Send me. I just picture Isaiah after he's come up off the ground. Just, all right, Lord, you don't have to tell me where. Just right here. Lord, whatever it is, whatever you want, however you want, Lord, here I am right here and right now. Whatever it is that you want from me. And in this moment, the nation needed the Lord. And Isaiah was the man God chose to, to raise up to be the prophet to that nation, to be the voice of God. Now, here's the deal. Some of you are thinking like, man, he was called and commissioned. I bet that was, what happens next? Tell me all about it. Isaiah says, look, they don't hear one thing I'm saying. <laughs> it's, this is much harder than I ever thought. This is very difficult. Can I tell you something? Evangelism's hard. Evangelism, I can't even talk. Evangelism is difficult. It's God has given us a responsibility, but every result is up to Him. I would say this to you: I'm, I love to bass fish. 
but one really, really, really clear statement. I'm never going to catch a fish if my line is not in the water. All right? As much as I can watch it on YouTube, as much as I can think about the pictures I have of fish on my phone, I'm never going to catch a fish if my line is not in the water. People are never going to hear the name of Jesus. They're never going to have an opportunity to respond to His truth and His gospel if we're not putting lines in the water. And it's our responsibility to carry that message. Now, one thing I want you to see about this. This here am I send me. That wasn't Isaiah's dream. I don't think Isaiah was a five-year-old playing with a prophet figurine. Can't wait to be a prophet. Can't wait to be rejected. I don't think that was his dream. But when you've encountered the majesty of God, when you've experienced the mercy of God, the cleansing of God, it's surrender that becomes our dream. In fact, God's dream becomes your dream. And what is His dream? Every nation, every tribe, every tongue, surrounding the throne of God, giving Him great praise. I tell my wife this every time I leave to travel. One, I tell her I love her. I tell her I'm completely, had a mentor of mine hammer this into my mind. He says, write it and say it. I'm faithful to you. Over and over again, I don't want you worrying about me when I'm gone. I'm completely faithful to you, but I always look at her and I say this. It's for one more. It's for one more. When it comes to evangelism, it's just one more voice surrounding the throne of God, giving him great praise. Just one more voice. And it's our responsibility. It's our privilege. It's our honor. So from an application standpoint, would you just ask yourself this question? What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do with what I've heard? What am I supposed to do with this God who is majestic, this King who is great, He's grand and He's glorious, this King who has shown me mercy, He's forgiven me of all my sin, He's proven His steadfast love to me over and over again, but He's given me the privilege and the responsibility of carrying His name and carrying His message. The question is this, God, what do you want from me right now? And I believe a great answer is this. Whatever you want, wherever you want, however you want. We'll begin with our neighbors. And I pray to God that leads us to the nations. That we'd cross the street and we would cross the sea. Why? Because this king's worthy of every bit of it. He's worthy of every bit of it. It might not be your dream. It might ruin your dream. But for you and I to embrace the heartbeat of heaven, which is ascending God, which is a God who's given us the privilege and the responsibility of sharing his name, man, it's a great joy and it's a great honor to do that.
That's our privilege. Dear God, thank you. Thank you so much for sending Jesus. Lord, your missionary heart, your evangelistic heart, Lord, which is to send and to share and to proclaim and to herald the gospel. Lord, I pray, dear God, that your heart would become our heart right here and now. Lord, if there's anybody in this room that does not have a real personal relationship with you, Lord, I pray that they would see you as revealed in Scripture. They'd be overwhelmed by your majesty. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. I pray that they would be cleansed by your mercy. And Lord, each and every one of us, every member, a minister, each and every one of us surrendered to the mission of God. So move in us, dear God. Send us out, Lord, with your power. Send us out with your message. Remind us, dear God, of what it cost us, cost you, to to give us this message and to give us this hope. May we be unashamed in taking it out. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand to our feet. Respond to the word of God.